This is 51 Days of Terror, the Seminal Heights serial killings, a News Channel 8 investigation. We poured through hundreds of pages of documents and hours of interviews to shed light on the victims and the people at the center of the case, all to answer one of the biggest questions, why? I'm your host, Amanda Shavari. Howell Donaldson III needs to get out of town today. It's Tuesday, November 28th, 2017. Day 51. Howell goes to his job at McDonald's. He works at the location in a Tampa neighborhood called Ybor City, about three and a half miles south of Seminole Heights. Howell is black, about five foot, 11 inches tall. He's a former athlete, so he's in good shape, but not too muscular. His hair isn't long, but it's growing out a bit right now. He needs a trim. He has a thin mustache, almost hard to see unless you look closely. Today, Howell walks into work and approaches his manager, Delonda Walker. Howell tells her he's going through something. He needs an advance on his check. He also needs to leave by noon today. They talk for a bit and he gets to work on the grill. He gets delayed at work and doesn't leave the store until one. He heads out to pick up his check, but it's not enough money, just 150 bucks. He needs more. He has to buy a plane ticket. He goes back to work to talk to Delanda. So he asked me, say, I really need to leave town. This is Delanda talking with police. I need you to use your credit card or something so and purchase my plane ticket. He didn't tell me where. So I said, okay, um, I'll give you $12 that I had left. Howell's planning to take a leave of absence from work, and his ticket will be for a one-way trip. Delanda tells Howell to go to Amscot. They give out cash advances. She suggests he gets one, then puts all of his money, plus the 12 bucks she gave him, on one of Amscot's prepaid cards. He can use that to buy a plane ticket. He asks if he can come back to use the Wi-Fi to purchase his ticket. She says he can. He leaves the store again. Delanda describes Howell as strange, not just today. He's been odd since he started working at the restaurant in September. He has episodes with his managers. He's known to have bursts of anger, but immediately after, he'll start laughing about it. He can't work at night, but never says why it's a bad time for him. When he does come in, he's always late. Once, he even asked if he could stay in the restaurant lobby overnight. He and Delanda have never had any issues, which may be why he trusts her enough to ask for a favor. And he, before he left the store, he was like, I got something to, for you to hold for me promise and I'll contact you later and I'll tell you what to do afterwards. So he handed me the bag, tell me put it in my what kind of bag was it? Salad bag, McDonald's salad bag. Okay. And he said, uh, promise me you're not gonna look at it. I said, okay. But I picked it up soon as I know he left out the door, so when I picked the bag up, it's mighty heavy. The whole thing makes Delanda suspicious. Howell spent all day trying to get out of town. Now He's handing her a mysterious bag. Although she doesn't look in it, it feels like there's a gun inside. At 2.25 p.m., Officer Randy Whitney sits down to eat at McDonald's. She just started her meal when Delanda approaches her table. She's shaking and asks, you're going to stay, right? She wants to know if Officer Whitney is going to stay inside the restaurant. The officer assures Delanda she's not going anywhere. She asks what's going on. Delanda doesn't know what to do. She feels like she needs to call her supervisor first and get some guidance. But Officer Whitney tells her it's all right. Delanda can tell her what's going on. Now, Delanda's crying. It's clear to Officer Whitney that she's afraid and anxious. Delanda says an employee just asked her to hold on to a bag and not to open it. Officer Whitney knows there has to be more. No one would be acting this frightened over something so simple. So Officer Whitney replies with a leading, okay. Delanda tells her the bag was heavy and it felt like there was a gun inside. 
Officer Whitney gets up and throws away her food. She asked Alonda to take her to the bag. It's in the back office, in a drawer. As they head to the office, several employees are whispering. Do you think he's the guy, someone says. Another answers, I think he's the guy. Someone else. He sure walks like the serial killer. And boy, he's been acting strange lately. They've had their suspicions. Just like Delanda, the other employees think Howell is strange. They like to pass the time by laughing and joking around. But Howell doesn't really engage with them. They feel like he doesn't have much of a personality at all. He's just there. When details about the Seminole Heights serial killer start circulating the news, they start to wonder, is it him? One bold employee even brought her suspicions straight to Howell. I took the picture of the, uh, the sketch and took it to him in his face, and he didn't like that. He said, hey, don't play with me like that. When he did that, I seen that, that look on his face. His reaction that day made everyone more suspicious. Now they're wondering if they were right. Back to Delanda. She goes into the drawer and pulls out a salad bag. Officer Whitney uses her fingernails to pull back the edge of the bag. She sees a black trigger of a gun. She puts on gloves and takes it out of the bag. It's a Glock, 40 caliber, the same one used in the murders. Officer Whitney takes the magazine out and looks at the ammo. It's also the same kind used in the Seminole Heights serial killings. She's already called this into her supervisors and they're rushing toward the restaurant. This time, they won't let the suspect get away. Captain Michael Stout gets to the scene first. It's 2.50 p.m. As he pulls in, he spots a red Mustang. There's a man walking away from the car toward the restaurant. He's wearing a McDonald's uniform. Captain realizes this could be the suspect. He thinks about this situation. The man is closing the gap between himself and a possible murder weapon. He could have a gun on him right now. There's only one officer inside. It could lead to what Chief Brian Dugan keeps warning them about, a cop being killed. Captain Stout decides he has to stop the guy from going in. He pulls his car up, blocking the drive-thru. He gets out, points his weapon at the guy in the McDonald's uniform, and orders him to get down. The man listens. If you haven't guessed by now, the man being held at gunpoint is Howell Donaldson III. As Captain Stout puts handcuffs on him, Howell Donaldson says two words. I'm sorry. It's around 3 p.m. now. Chief Brian Dugan is home. He's getting ready to take his son to a doctor's appointment. He's been working almost nonstop on the Seminole Heights case, so he hasn't had much time for his family. His wife has taken on a majority of the responsibilities with their two kids, so today Chief Dugan is taking a few hours to help her out by taking their son to the appointment. But then his phone rings. I get a phone call. He says, well, we don't know what we have here, but we have a gun uh, that was given to one of our cops, and it's the same make and model of what we're looking for. After 5,000 tips, this was the first one that I thought, this might actually, we've never had something like this. But I also thought the skeptic in me said, oh, it's too good to be true. He calls his wife and tells her she needs to leave work and take their son to the doctor. He may be on his way to catch a killer. After being taken into custody by Captain Stout, Howell is put in the back of a police car. As he waits, the parking lot starts to fill up with law enforcement. There's no way he doesn't notice how quickly things go from a small response to a large-scale investigation. He's in the car for a few minutes when two people get in. Tampa Police Detectives Kenny Nightlinger and Austin Hill. They're investigators on the Seminole Heights murder case. They don't come in guns blazing, trying to badger him into giving them answers. In fact, they're quite pleasant. It's clear now this is a tactic. They want to make Howell feel like he's not a suspect. They're sort of downplaying the response, like this is all just business as usual. Here's Detective Nightlinger. But there's a lot of concern in general, in our country, in our society, when it comes to handguns. It makes people uncomfortable, it makes people feel unsafe, especially when it's in the hands of somebody that they're unfamiliar with. You definitely heard those sirens in the background. It sounds like a chopper is hovering overhead, if someone drops off a gun at a restaurant, you definitely expect some sort of police response. But this seems above and beyond what's normal. It's hard to know if Howell considers that at this point. He really just responds by saying, mm-hmm, and right, every once in a while. Right now, Howell is simply detained, 
so he's free to go whenever he wants. The detectives make that very clear to him multiple times. This investigation, right? You are free to go. I want you to be, I want to be clear on that. You don't have to continue to talk to me. You are free if you so choose to walk out of this car on your own and go about your business. This right? is Howell's chance. He's free to get out of the patrol car and head to the airport and leave town. Detective Nightlinger does say several times he'd like to talk to Howell more and find out what's really going on with the gun. But he still makes it clear they can't keep him there. It's obvious they're going a little overboard with the number of times they tell him he's free to go. If this is the guy they're looking for, the detectives don't want any evidence thrown out later because someone would argue that Howell wasn't aware of his rights. There's no way he doesn't understand the choices they're giving him right now. He can leave or he can talk to the police at the station. Howell tries to offer a third option. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to get out of here so I can go back to school. Okay. That's it. I mean, if you guys, I mean, I, I mean, I'll stay in here. You guys can escort to the airport and I'll just have my father come pick up the car. I'm just trying to get my education. I just want to further my career. I just want to, just want to do good in the world. I, and I understand. Again, the detectives are understanding. Again, they tell him they can't make him stay. And again, they tell him they just want to figure out what's going on. They spend about four minutes making their case for him to come down to the station and give them some answers. If it all checks out, he can go about his business. So I'm asking you point blank, so there's no misunderstanding. What would you prefer to do? Yeah, I want to clear the board. Which means you are you willing to come down and talk with me and, and explain all this so we all feel better about how Donaldson, how it came to be here? Yes, yes. Okay. Is that, is that okay? Yes. As Howell makes his way to police headquarters in downtown Tampa, activity continues to grow in the parking lot. More law enforcement agencies show up, and the media follows. Hey there, good evening to you again from the parking lot here of the McDonald's in Ybor City in the uh, possible Seminole Heights, Seminole Heights case link uh, to a possible arrest. I mean, here's what we're hearing. This is Melanie Michael, a colleague of ours and one of dozens of local journalists who've covered this story almost every single day. She's live streaming on Facebook. It's just after 7 o'clock, a couple of hours after police confirmed they're talking with someone who could be linked to the serial killings. Melanie points the camera towards Howell Donaldson's red Mustang. It's blocked off by police tape, and law enforcement have been examining it for hours. Uh, inside of this car, they have taken all kinds of evidence. We are talking about a suitcase, a backpack, several hoodies, a parka, and the parka was similar to the one that we saw in the surveillance video that was released throughout this case in all four murders. So uh, the police chief telling us again he is optimistic in the fact that this could be linked to the Seminole Heights case. That this Police are swarming the area now. They've taken over the McDonald's parking lot with patrol cars and undercover vehicles. They're also filling up the parking lot of the church next door. As we mentioned, the crime scene tape is blocking off the area around Howell Donaldson's car, but also there's more tape blocking off his actual car. Half of the news crews are watching it all unfold here, catching a glimpse of evidence as it's being taken out of the Mustang and photographed. The other half, they're outside of the police headquarters in downtown Tampa, where Howell Donaldson III is being questioned. Somebody said you played basketball for TC? Yeah, I went to Temple Catholic. Uh, okay. uh, played ball for them um, in high school. Are you playing now at St. John's? Uh, you said not anymore. Uh, I plan on going further with my basketball career. At St. John's? Uh, no, actually professionally. Okay, because yeah. I get to join the amateur like, yeah, European circuit. And exactly. then it's okay. Mm -hmm. This is probably not what you expected when we said Howell was being questioned by police. Sounds more like two people meeting at a party and making small talk about their lives, where they went to school, what their plans are for the future, the people they both know in common. It's obviously a tactic to keep Howell calm. They continue to make him think he's not really a suspect. It's also a way to discover more about him. They find out that he played basketball at St. John's University in New York for two years. He attended college for five years and graduated with a degree in sports management. They find out which one of his coaches he worked closely with. Howell tells them where his parents live. He tells them what high school he went to. 
He says he was planning to go back to school, and he talked to some of his former professors about it. That's why he's trying to get out of town today. He was heading to New York. He doesn't seem to realize he's giving them exactly what they want. Now they have a background on who Howell is, a list of people they can contact as this case goes further. After chatting for a few minutes, they ask about the gun. What exactly did he want Dolanda to do with it? Detective Austin Hill takes the lead on this line of questioning, but you hear Nightlinger chime in. Were you going to tell her what to do with it, yeah, get rid of it? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or just, uh, initially, I just said, I have something for you. I just mm -hmm. want you to put it away. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to M. Scott and do what I need to do. When I, when I got back, then I was going to proceed to tell her the steps to take to what to do. Right. What, what did you want to store it or to get rid of it? Yeah, I wanted to just to store it because, okay. I mean, I did purchase the gun with my hard work and money. Right. Yeah. So, I mean. Yeah. How long did you purchase the gun? No, I purchased, uh, it's just, uh, September. Let's pause here. Howell didn't buy the gun in September. He bought it in October. He walked into Shooter's World on Fletcher Avenue on Tuesday, October 3rd, and purchased a Glock 27 40 caliber. Florida law requires a three-day wait before you can take that gun home. Donaldson returned four days later on Saturday, October 7th, to pick up his firearm. Two days later, Benjamin Mitchell was shot and killed. Howell tells detectives no one else had access to the gun. He says he actually gave it to Delanda because he wanted to make sure his younger brother didn't find it. We only have audio of this interview, so we can't see his face. But Howell seems calm. His voice isn't defensive or distraught. He also seems certain of his innocence. So certain, he agrees to let the investigators test his gun. Anytime we come across a firearm, we'd like to make sure it wasn't previously used in any kind of wrongdoing. All right. So with that being said, do we have your consent to fire that gun, to test fire it, in order to make sure it wasn't traced back to something that was inappropriate? Yes. Is that okay if we do that? Yes. Okay. The results will tell them if this firearm was used in the Seminole Heights serial killings. They will have shell casings from the scenes of the murders to use as a comparison. Howell fills out some paperwork giving investigators permission to test the gun. Then they wait. They spend the next hour talking about guns. I would rather shoot a 45 than a 40, as far as recoil. Uh, I don't think it's as snappy. As snappy as the 40. Because it's not a high pressure round. A 45 is a big round, but it's slow moving. What he's going to get his masters for. Once I, once I can get somewhere and I can start to focus in again mm -hmm. and get back in that school mindset and, and get my mind right, it'll be either between accounting and mm -hmm. finance. They even take his pizza order. One of our cats bought pizza. Are you pizza? You want a pizza? Yeah, I'll take some pizza. You know, pepperoni or cheese? Pepperoni. I mean, I, I don't want to encourage you to stay longer than you want to, but I mean, if you want to stay long enough for a piece of pizza, you want a piece of pizza? Yeah, absolutely. Somewhere in between, they asked his permission to do something else. They want to check his cell phone. May we download the contents of your phone to, uh, in the event that we might need to find out where you were at a certain time to clear you from any potential incurring. Uh, allegations or anything makes. Yes. Is that okay? Yes. Almost two more hours go by. The gun test results aren't in yet, but the cell phone records are. Your phone indicates that you may have been up there in that area on certain nights. Okay. Okay. So I'm. I'm I, I want to, you know, indulge me with that. Is there reasons why your phone might be, you know, in those areas of that night when you know the. You know, you told me that they didn't necessarily should be. There's no reason for them to be. Um, probably just, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Probably just went to a friend's house or... Well, that's what I'm asking. Yeah, said, stopped it's, at a gas station. They ask him if he's familiar with what's going on in Seminole Heights. Howell says he hasn't followed it too much, but knows there's a serial killer. He heard his co-workers talking about it. He says he doesn't even know much about the area, though. But his cell phone says otherwise. Location data on it shows he was in Seminole Heights between 8.47 and 9.02, Monday, October 9th, the night Benjamin Mitchell was killed. He was back in the same area on Wednesday, October 11th, between 8.18 and 8.42 p.m., the night Monica Hoffa was killed. Howell's phone was also in the area between 7.51 
and 7.58 on Thursday, October 19th, the night Anthony Naiboa was killed. There are also searches on his phone for Seminole Heights killer and Seminole Heights. He viewed those search results on a few websites, including CNN, Twitter, and YouTube. Those are quite a few visits and searches for someone who's not familiar with the neighborhood or the case. It raises some red flags. A couple of other things in his phone do as well. One of them is his web history. In the hours after the three murders, he visited pornographic websites. A lot of serial killers have some sort of sexual element to their murders, so this probably makes him more of a suspect. Another thing, Howell had been in touch with an ATF agent. The agent got Howell's name from a list of Glock purchasers that investigators were trying to track down in connection with the case. The agent stopped by Howell's parents' home sometime between October 30th and November 1st. No one answered the door. He did get in contact with someone over the phone who said they were Howell Donaldson. But the person was suspicious. It was really an ATF agent calling. The agent asked for an email address to send paperwork to verify his identity. But he never got that email address and never heard from Howell. Ronnie Felton was killed just days later. The interview has been pretty chatty and friendly up until this point. But the evidence against Howell starts piling up. Now, things take a turn. The detectives don't get angry. There's no good cop, bad cop game here. But they start talking less about basketball and more about the actual case. Detective Nightlinger takes out photos of the victims and shows them to Howell. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's a 60-year-old man that was out feeding the homeless. Mm -hmm. That's an autistic kid, okay, that, that missed his bus. This young woman, 30 years old, was merely walking from her aunt's place, all right, just down the road in, in her neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And this young man right here was, uh, was waiting in a bus to go pick up his girlfriend to make sure she got home safely. Decent people, people like you, all right. Nightlinger tells Howell they're looking for help. His phone shows he was in the area on the nights of three of the murders. Can he tell him anything that would help with this case? He says he can't. The detective switches gears. Nightlinger compliments Howell, says he's smarter than he is. He makes it seem like he needs Howell's help. Nightlinger asks if he knows what type of person would do something like this. Howell isn't sure. Would you be capable of doing something like that? No. About 20 minutes after the cell phone records come back, detectives read Howell his Miranda rights. They make sure he understands what they are, but don't really make a big deal out of it. Everything is still calm, pleasant. Detectives Nightlinger and Hill talk to Howell for about another hour. He's still pretty tight-lipped. He mostly gives them quick answers, like no and I'm not sure. But they need to get him talking. If he is the guy they're looking for, this is their best chance to get a confession. They ask if Howell knows what would drive a person to do something like this. He doesn't. They wonder if losing someone you love could make you change. Has Howell ever lost anyone close to him? He tells them his aunt died of cancer a couple years ago, and they were close. But he didn't view her as a surrogate parent or anything. They bring out more evidence against him. He bought a 20-round box of ammunition, and he's missing 14 rounds. Are the shell casings they have going to match his gun? Howell says no. Next, they pretend to appeal to his conscience, but what they're really doing is stroking his ego. If this guy killed four people and just kept on living his life as if nothing happened, he probably doesn't have much of a conscience at all. So they need to make him feel like he's admired. It's easy. You turned over your gun to somebody else because you can't stop and you know this moment of, of you know, I, I'm thinking clearly I'm going to do this. If you were doing this up to this point and you stopped yourself by doing that, in this room, it's commendable. It's almost a heroic act. The families aren't going to see it that way because they're bitter and angry. Some might forgive, but I see it as, look, this, this guy took that step. It's a sign of conscience, okay? But it's somebody not the monster that everybody is portraying to be. Exactly. Somebody with a conscience who makes a conscious decision to do that is somebody that also understands that these families are grieving, okay? And the person that has the conscience to separate themselves from that gun to try to prevent this from ever happening again is the same person that understands that those families are just hurting and wanting answers and wanting to know why. Is that the person that sits before us today? Are you the person responsible for, 
for this and then are the same person that's responsible for stopping this? Are you that person? No. Did your conscience drive you to leave your gun with Delonda? Did my conscience? Your conscience. Did your conscience drive you to take your gun out of your car, give it to her with the intention of, you've already told us, you wanted her to, to keep it, that you, you wanted her to, she's a responsible person that you trusted and you wanted her to hold on to that gun. Was that something that was driven by your conscience to make sure that you did not have that gun in your possession? Is that what that act was? Yeah. Was it a conscience-driven act? But for what reason? To, so my brother wouldn't get it. So your brother wouldn't get it. Yeah. This tactic right isn't getting him to talk either. Howell seems to be getting a little restless now. He asks to go see his family. The first time, detectives sort of brush it off and continue going forward with their line of questioning. The second time, Nightlinger says he'll have to call the state attorney's office to see if that's possible. He leaves the room. Howell is confused. They said he's free to leave, but now they have to make a call to see if he can? Detective Hill tells him things have changed. When I initially came here, you said I'll, I'll be questioned, I'll be able to leave. Absolutely, we did. And there was a point that we reached where this went from voluntary to you're not free to leave, which is why we read you your rights, okay? That's, we, we crossed that point, which is why we read you your rights. We're going to determine, the state attorney may say, yes, he's free to leave. He may say that we need to detain you until we continue some of the other avenues of the investigation. Howell asks Nightlinger again when he gets back. He really can't leave? Nightlinger tells him they can't let him go until they get the test fire results back from his gun. If it's not a match for the murders, Howell's free to leave. They go back to trying to get him to tell them anything substantial. But it's more of the same. Howell isn't feeling very chatty. It also sounds like he's getting a little more emotional now, though. His voice is shakier, maybe from nerves. He starts responding less. There are a few long stretches of silence. Four hours after police start interviewing Howell, they finally have the results from the gun. Okay, you understand your rights, right? I've explained them to you. You have no questions about them at all. You understand your rights to remain silent, your rights to an attorney. Did you want to review them again before I ask you any more questions? Do you understand them? Yes, I want to be clear about that. Yes, right? Because it's the gun. Okay? You murdered those people. The jacket that you were wearing on that video that we showed you that you claim not to, to be able to identify, it's in your car. Okay? Your phone puts you right there at specific times. Detective Hill shows Howell a photo captured from the surveillance video. Again, we only have the audio from the interview, but Hill says it shows Howell's face. They've laid out all the evidence in front of him. If they're hoping for a confession now, they're let down. I really just, I just want to speak to my family. I understand that, and you're, right, you're going to be given that opportunity at some point. Right now is not that point. I can't, I can't offer that up. But I mean, why? I just don't know anything else to say. I just want to, I guess, talk to my attorney and talk to who I need to talk to. Okay. All right. All right. I hope, man, listen, I hope we get an answer. All right? Because I'm telling you, it's the only question that they're going to have. The who we've answered for them. The, the why can only come from one person. It can't come from me. I can't even begin to guess. That rousing speech from Detective Nightlinger gets a response, but not the one he wants. Maybe this is all finally becoming too real for Donaldson. They have enough evidence to arrest him for four murders. He's not going to New York. He's not going to see his parents. He's going to jail, and he may never come out again. Okay. Get sick. Get your trash can. It's the first big reaction they've seen from Howell in four hours. Detectives stop the interview. Howell asks for an attorney, so he's not talking anymore, and they won't get a confession. It's probably a letdown, but at least they have their suspect. It's about 11 p.m., three hours after Howell Donaldson was arrested for the murders of Benjamin Mitchell, Monica Hoffa, 
Anthony Naiboa, and Ronald Felton. Chief Brian Dugan and Mayor Bob Buckhorn are holding a press conference. News stations are showing it live, all hoping to hear these terrifying days have come to an end. The police chief and the mayor walk up to the podium. Here's Chief Dugan. As you recall, on October 9th, Benjamin Mitchell was 22 years old and he was murdered. That was 51 days ago. On October 11th, two days later, 32-year-old Monica Hoffa was murdered. Eight days later, on October 19th, Anthony Niboa murdered. 26 days later, on November 14th, just two weeks ago, 60-year-old Ronald Felton was murdered. We received over 5,000 tips in this case. I am pleased to announce that tonight we will be making an arrest in the Seminole Heights murders. Our detectives are currently working on the charging documents and we will be charging four counts of first-degree murder for how Emmanuel Donaldson III, 24 years old. He goes on to thank various law enforcement agencies who've helped out during the investigation. The chief also acknowledges the press's desire for more answers, but he warns that he doesn't have them just yet. Next, Mayor Buckhorn steps up. 51 days ago, I said this was a struggle between good and evil. Well, tonight, goodness has won. Tonight, in the battle between darkness and light, light has won. If you think these men went out and celebrated that night, that they had a huge party and toasted to the arrest, you'd be wrong. They weren't happy. This wasn't a celebratory moment. When we asked them about it a year after the arrest, both could only describe it as a sense of relief. But it wasn't a happy time. Again, Chief Dugan. You know, it was a very numb feeling. Um, you know, people, you hear about this phrase closure. Well, maybe somebody can ever explain that to me because I don't know what that is because there was no closure to this. It was just a numb feeling. It was, it was a certain relief that it was over with um, and that people could have their neighborhoods back. Um, but it was a very numb feeling that, I don't know, it just, it's hard to explain. It just kind of was a sense of emptiness because he never told us why he did it. sincere heartbroken for the families and the community of, of Seminole Heights. And we just want to say that we, do, we love our son, we support our son. This is Rosita Donaldson. She's Howell's mother. His parents are talking to reporters three days after the arrest. They're sitting at a conference table at their attorney's office. This is Rosita Donaldson. She's Howell's mother. His parents are talking to reporters three days after the arrest. They're sitting at a conference table at their attorney's office. The word they use most to describe their emotional state right now is devastated. Here's Howell's father, Howell Donaldson Jr. It's been difficult for everyone, as my wife said, um, not only for us, but for victims uh, uh, in this case. And uh, our hearts are heavy, as their hearts are heavy. And we're people of faith and we're going to lean on our faith as we go through this ordeal and we're going to allow God to be God. They're obviously distraught right now. What they're hearing doesn't match up with the child they knew, the one they raised. Rosita says she prayed for the families of the murder victims when she first heard about the killings. Now her son is accused of taking their lives. She's struggling to make sense of it all. Everybody's in disbelief. Anybody that knows Trey knows that's not Trey. He doesn't have the personality of that character wristed that they're giving him. That's not my son. That's my baby. That's not my son. Rosita and Howell Donaldson don't speak about anything that pertains to the case. So nothing about whether his behavior has changed recently or if they suspected it was him in those surveillance videos shown on the news. Over the next few months, they stick with this strategy, even when questioned by prosecutors. They refuse to give any information on their son's whereabouts the nights of the murders or on his mental health. 
they know this is probably a death penalty case. As their attorney puts it, they'd be giving information that could help end their child's life. It's probably not an easy position for any parent, even if they cooperate. After a lot of back and forth in the courts over it, a judge places the Donaldsons on house arrest for six months. The state needs them to answer these questions. Before the six months is up, they decide to cooperate with attorneys, but they continue to show up in court to support their son. Howell's parents aren't the only ones skeptical about his arrest. Police, they're positive he's the guy, and he's the only guy. But during our reporting, we were bombarded by people who don't believe he acted alone. They wonder how he could have gotten away from all of the murder scenes so quickly if he didn't have help. Maybe a getaway driver? A recently released audio recording from a witness only fuels those theories. So I go outside to get some chain. I got the chain machine against the wall right there. Okay. And when I get, get go back and put it in the washing, I heard a shot. Pow! I know it was a gunshot. This is Robbie Clark. He was at the laundromat across the street from the New Seasons Apostolic Ministries Incorporated the morning that Ronnie Felton was shot and killed. The change machine is on the side of the laundromat, so Robbie had to walk outside to get more coins. He just stepped out when he heard the gunshots. When I heard the shot, I looked that way, and I seen three black dudes dressed in black. I don't know where the man was sitting, but I guess he, he, they shot him, they knocked him down. Well, I didn't see the right shot. I heard the first shot. That got my attention. And I ducked and I looked up. Bang, bang, bang. They shot five times. I'm pretty sure they shot five times. And they ran on the rack that way, ran north. Robbie's story sounds compelling. We certainly weren't there, so we can't discount his version of the events. But we really can't say this proves anything either. Here's the problem. Robbie didn't see the actual shooting. He heard the gunshots first, then he ducked down until the shots stopped. He doesn't see who fired the gun, so he doesn't know if it was any of the three guys he saw running. People running after hearing gunshots, especially when there's a killer on the loose, it's pretty normal. Remember, there were people waiting in line for the food pantry, so it's not even suspicious for people to be hanging around that early in the morning. If anything, Robbie's story could be used to help Howell in court. Ronnie's murder is different than the others. He was killed just before the sun came up, instead of at night. He wasn't walking down a deserted street. There were people standing around. Plus, this is the only murder without phone location data that shows Howell's phone was in the vicinity. The defense could argue this sheds doubt on whether Ronnie was actually murdered by the serial killer at all. They could say this was a copycat killing. Maybe it seems like a part of a gang initiation. We'd be surprised if the defense doesn't bring that up in court. I'm an ex-college athlete, and it's hard for me to stand right now. Um, it, I'm, I'm struggling to stand right now. And this is Howell Donaldson III talking to the judge on Tuesday, January 29, 2019. It's more than a year after his arrest. He's wearing an orange shirt and pants, standard prison wear. He'd shave his hair off shortly after being arrested, but now it's grown out again. It's unkept. He's grown out his mustache, which could also use a trim. This is the first time he's spoken in court. He says he's sick. Howell's an athlete, so he knows his body better than most. He tells the judge something isn't right. Yeah, I'm 26 years old. I shouldn't be feeling like I'm 96 years old. And I really do sincerely need some help. And if you can grant me that and they say, oh, he's fine, he's healthy, um, then they can you know, shove me back in the cell. But I'm pretty sure they're gonna find some not so good things. Howell doesn't go into specifics about what's making it hard for him to stand, but he does reference his heart a few times. He wants to be examined by doctors outside of the jail. The judge doesn't go for that. He says Howell will be looked at by doctors inside of the jail, but if they do find a bigger problem, he can go to the hospital. Howell also asks to be allowed to attend all future hearings in this case. The judge grants him that request. His attorneys have more than 300 witnesses to interview in this case, which means there's sure to be many more hearings before a trial begins. So this might not be the last we hear from Howell, but it's doubtful the people who believe he killed Benjamin Mitchell, Monica Hoffa, Anthony Naiboa, and Ronald Felton will ever hear him address the only question they really want answered. Why? Why? I mean, why'd you do it? Uh, 
what triggered in your mind um, the decision to kill four innocent people for no reason? Um, they didn't do anything to you. You didn't know them. Uh, they just happened to be living their lives and minding their own business, and you executed them. Um, we all want to know why. Their families want to know why. This is Mayor Buckhorn asking the question we've been working to find the answer to. It's something we think the victims' families and the Seminole Heights community deserve to know. Why? If the police are right and Howell Donaldson III is the Seminole Heights serial killer, why would he do something like this? He's from a good family. He didn't have a rough childhood. He didn't have a criminal history. He had friends. He played sports. He went to a good college. The idea of a guy like this going on a killing spree is hard to make sense of. We want to be clear, Howell hasn't been convicted of anything. He still has to go through trial, and a jury will decide if they believe he's guilty or not. But he is the person accused of this crime, and the evidence against him is compelling. So we're using him to get our answer to our big question. Why? To do this, we decided to get help from an expert, Dr. Brianna Fox. She's a former FBI special agent and now teaches at the University of South Florida in Tampa. Fox's research centers around what makes certain people more likely to commit crimes. The first thing she tells us, forget everything you knew about serial killers. The most popular profiles that people are aware of are the FBI's original organized, disorganized profile. Um, they came up with this in the late 1970s by interviewing 36 of the most famous uh, serial killers and um, rapists and mass murderers of all time. People like Ted Bundy, Charlie Manson, John Wayne Gacy, I mean all the famous serial killers you can think of. The issue is that since those profiles were originally developed and while they were great at the beginning, things have changed since the 1970s, right? Things have evolved. People are different now. So we're starting to see, for one, people don't fit so neatly into just one type of profile. So that image of a white guy in his 30s or 40s with a troubled childhood, the one we've been using as a model for serial killers and what they're expected to be like, well, serial killers don't all fit into those boxes anymore. So all of those people saying that Howell doesn't fit the profile, they're not exactly right. He just doesn't fit the profile we're all familiar with. Fox believes if he did this, Howell could fit another profile. It's called mixed. Let's start with the basics. There are two profiles for serial killers, organized and disorganized. Organized killers take time to plan out their crimes. They're more likely to have steady jobs and be functioning members of society. They might even have close ties with their families and kids. They blend into society. This is the person who neighbors all say, I can't believe he would do something like this after an arrest. Then there are disorganized killers. The neighbors aren't really surprised when they see their mugshot on the 11 o'clock news. Disorganized killers operate more on impulse. They don't keep steady jobs and often aren't involved with anyone romantically for long periods of time. They're antisocial, and people often view them as strange or weird. Fox believes if Howell Donaldson did commit these crimes, he would be in the mixed category, which means he's a combination of the disorganized and organized profiles. It's something FBI profilers are really just starting to explore fully. We have a young man where if he was responsible, had, you know, attended college. He was, um, you know, from a nice family. He had good upbringing. It didn't seem like he was one of these antisocial um, people that did not fit in with society. Conversely, his offenses were very impulsive. He did not premeditate which person he was going to kill. He did not stalk them. He did not um, consider in advance which, how he's going to commit his crimes. It seemed like he only did it maybe moments before he thought of killing people. This is the person I'm going to select. Fox says when you look at modern serial killers and the idea of Donaldson committing these crimes, it isn't as hard to comprehend. She uses the D.C. sniper case as an example. You probably remember it. In October of 2002, 41-year-old John Allen Muhammad and 17-year-old Lee Boyd Melvo went on a shooting spree in Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. They killed 10 people and hurt three others. Melvo reminds her most of Donaldson, a kid with a good background and childhood, who ended up being charged with a string of murders. Another similarity between the Seminole Heights serial killings and the D.C. sniper case, the way the victims were killed, with a gun. It's an impersonal approach. 
Serial killers usually like more personal methods like strangulation, drowning, or stabbing. The killing is a thrill for them, but it's only part of it. The act of taking a life, that's what most serial killers really enjoy. When they strangle someone, they can literally feel the life leaving their body. It gives them a sense of satisfaction. But the Seminole Heights serial killer shot people, then ran off. They might not have seen their victims dying or even made any eye contact. It's a lot more hands-off than most serial killers, which is why Fox thinks this might not have been about controlling life or death. Maybe it was about fear. For 51 days, the people living in Seminole Heights were constantly afraid. They put on a brave face and banded together to keep their lives as normal as possible, but there was no avoiding the fear when someone is randomly shooting people in your neighborhood. You have to wonder if you'll be next, if someone in your family will be next. Fox believes that may be exactly what the killer wanted, to control people using fear, to have power over them, making them question every mood they made, suspicious of every unfamiliar face they saw. Something that could give a serial killer gratification, exactly what the D.C. snipers did. That doesn't explain what started it all, though. It doesn't explain what could make someone from a good family, someone who'd never even broken the law before, to possibly turn to serial murder. Fox believes it could be anger. Not the kind of anger you experience when someone's rude to you at the grocery store or when you get in an argument with your significant other. Those are quick bursts of anger. This, this builds up over time. Um, it seemed like he had very high aspirations in life. He wanted to be a professional basketball player. His parents had high hopes for their son. Um, they certainly raised him well and thought he was going to make it you know, very well in life. And then in college, um, he didn't make it on the basketball team. He didn't even make it as a, a walk-on. He uh, eventually dropped off the basketball team. He wanted to become a computer scientist, and he didn't make it in that major. So then he had to change majors, and when he graduated, he didn't even get a job in the field. He ended up working at a gym and then at McDonald's. So these types of things might accumulate over time and lead somebody to say, I'm really angry at society. I feel like I've been shortchanged. I feel like they've just, you know, done me wrong. And then that might lead to someone lashing out and saying, I'm just going to kill people because that's the only way to express my anger. This is the closest we've come to figuring out why the accused Seminole Heights killer may have committed these crimes. Anger. Anger over all of the things he couldn't do. All of the things he couldn't accomplish. All of the things that didn't work out for him. All of the dreams that he couldn't make come true. It's possible four people were shot and killed and an entire community was held hostage by fear for 51 days because of all of the things Howell Donaldson III couldn't achieve. There's always the question with anyone accused of being a serial killer, is the person a psychopath? It's something that Fox can't really answer. She does know psychopaths are more likely to be serial killers, but psychopathy is something diagnosed after you've spent some time with a subject, and she hasn't spent any time with Howell. But she did give us some perspective into how a psychopath's brain works. They don't really have a lot of empathy. It allows them to do terrible things and just walk away as if nothing happened. They don't care about their victims. When they get over the initial satisfaction of a kill, it's over. While families mourn and police investigate, a psychopath just goes about their life, not even thinking about what they've done. Another thing about psychopaths, they're narcissistic. They think they're above the law, above other people. It could explain how Howell was so willing to talk with police, so calm for most of the interview, even though evidence against him kept growing. Maybe he thought he could still get away with it. Like we said, Fox doesn't know if he is a psychopath, so it's hard to say anything definitively. So we have to address it, the porn. Howell's phone showed that he visited porn sites shortly after the first three murders. If he killed these people, could there have been some element of sexual gratification in it for him? Our bodies can't distinguish if we are at a candlelight dinner 
right, and our pupils are dilating, or if we're at a scary movie and our hearts are pounding, the lights are dim, you know, we're feeling all the same senses of arousal. Same thing as when you're maybe really excited or even scared, um, your heart's pounding, your autonomic arousal system is engaged, and so your body doesn't notice, let's say, the difference between that kind of stimulation and true arousal. And so that's often why we see these serial killers, you know, either gratifying themselves after such crimes or they just feel sexually aroused because it's exciting and enthralling to them. We asked Chief Brian Dugan what he thought about a possible motive. Could he use all of his years of law enforcement to begin to imagine why a suspect would do this? And more than a year after the arrests, the chief still can't make sense of it. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know why he did this. Um, you know, obviously his life was unraveling at some point. Um, you know, it, 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 that will always remain a mystery. The best we can do for now is remember the victims. Benjamin Mitchell, Monica Hoffa, Anthony Niboa, and Ronald Felton. We've spent this episode on the suspect, but this series is for them and their families to make sure they aren't just remembered for the way they died, but also for the way they lived. Right now, we may be one step closer to figuring out why the accused killer may have done this, but we may never really be 100% sure about what could drive someone to kill four people in cold blood. It may always be a mystery, but now the victims aren't. One Days of Terror is hosted by me, Amanda Shavari. It's written and executive produced by Brianti Downing. Kelly Hatton is our associate producer. Editing by Dallas Cotton. Heather Monahan is our digital producer. And Tim Price, our digital editor. You can find more details on the victims and the investigation on WFLA.com. You can also listen to every episode of the podcast there. Thank you to everyone who talked to us about the investigation and especially about the victims. We are honored to tell their stories. Thank you.